Hello and welcome to this week's podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This time for the Business Week ended 27th August 2021. This is Ian Haydock. This time, Pfizer buys into haematology, changes at the top at J&J, the outlook for solid tumour drug approvals, mRNA vaccine progress in India, and a look at diversity in clinical trials. Pfizer, flushed with cash from its COVID-19 vaccine, will buy the clinical stage immuno-oncology company Trillium Therapeutics for $2.26 billion in an acquisition that will bolster Pfizer's haematology pipeline with two clinical stage compounds targeting a new immune checkpoint, the firm's announced on 23rd August. The acquisition is in line with Pfizer's stated M&A strategy of bringing in mid-stage assets that could drive revenue growth in the 2025-30 to timeframe. The two leader assets, TTI-622 and TTI-621, target signal regulatory protein alpha, considered a key immune checkpoint in haematological malignancies. Pfizer believes they could be best in class with potential as both monotherapy and combination drugs. Both candidates are in phase 1b-2 development across various indications in haematological malignancies, including diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, peripheral T-cell lymphoma, and follicular lymphoma. TTI-662 and TTI-621 have the potential to be foundational in immunotherapy of haematological malignancies, analogous to the role PD-1 and PD-L1 play in tumours, Global Oncology President Andy Schmelz said in a same-day call outlining the rationale for the acquisition. Jessica Merrill writes that Pfizer has already been closely involved with Trillium, having invested $25 million in the company in September 2020 paving the way for Pfizer's Oncology R&D Chief Scientific Officer Jeff Settleman to take a place on Trillium's Scientific Advisory Board. For Trillium investors, the $18.50 per share offer from Pfizer represents a 118% premium over the 60-day volume-weighted average trading price of the stock ended on 20th of August. Despite the premium, some investors were disappointed in the acquisition price, given that the stock has been down from what it was trading at in 2020, when it went as high as $20 per share last November. The $2.26 billion price tag also represents a substantial discount to the $4.9 billion Gilead Sciences paid to buy 47 in March 2020 for a rival CD47 targeting immunotherapy, Magrolimab. The acquisition follows another deal Pfizer made in oncology in July, a licensing deal with Arvinas for rights to an estrogen receptor protein degrader for breast cancer. For Pfizer, the back-to-back deals are part of a 10-year investment in oncology that has transformed the company's commercial portfolio, most notably through the launch of iBrands for breast cancer. Oncology has grown into Pfizer's second-largest therapeutic category behind vaccines, generating $6 billion in the first six months of 2021 and growing by 18%. Johnson & Johnson Chairman and CEO Alex Gorski is stepping down to spend more time at home due to family health issues and, effective on 3rd January next year, will hand over the reins to longtime J&J veteran and current Vice Chairman Joaquin Duato, the company said on 19th August. Duato will become CEO and be named a member of the J&J Board of Directors, while Gorski will transition to Executive Chairman. Mandy Jackson writes that the changing of the guard is expected to be seamless, since Duato already plays a major role in setting and executing the company's global pharmaceutical and consumer business strategies. 
but it will add J&J's medical device business, an area well known to former device executive Gorski, to the executive's responsibilities. The transition of power is taking place at a time when all three businesses are growing. Total sales increased 27% year over year in the second quarter to $23.3 billion, including gains of 17%, 13% and 63% for pharma, consumer and devices respectively. With Duato's significant experience with the street and having been investor-facing for a few years now, we do not expect J&J's high-level strategy to change much, if at all, and continue to view the company as well-positioned to deliver on what we believe are strong and still-strengthening fundamentals, SVB Leerink analyst Danielle Antalfi said in a 20th August note. Duato, who was previously worldwide chairman of J&J's pharma business from January 2011 to July 2018, now provides strategic direction for the pharma and consumer health groups as vice chairman of the company's executive committee. He also oversees J&J's global supply chain, technology and health and wellness teams. His responsibilities include the company's COVID-19 vaccine efforts, which have been tumultuous, with manufacturing challenges and concerns about rare blood clots. In a series of articles, Scrip is taking a look at some of the key novel products expected to reach the market in 2022 in a cross-section of therapy areas. This time, with input from BiomedTracker, Alex Shimmings looks at eight new oncology products for solid tumours that could make their market debuts next year. Among these, Inovio Pharmaceuticals plans to file for regulatory approval of its DNA vaccine candidate VGX3100, for the treatment of cervical dysplasia caused by HPV 18 and 16 before the end of 2021. However, the company will need additional data and longer follow-up to confirm its benefits after top-line results from the Phase 3 Reveal 1 trial presented in March 2021 showed only marginal efficacy, although with a positive tolerability profile. It will be important to see longer-term follow-up as well as data from the Phase 3 Reveal 2 trial to determine whether VGX3100 can be protective against recurrence. This would place the product at an advantage over relatively simple surgical and ablative procedures that can still have high rates of HPV-associated recurrence. Other drugs covered in the infographic article include Astellas' Zolbituximab, a first-in-class monoclonal antibody against Isoform 2 of Claudin-18, Iovance's Lifilucel, ready-to-infuse autologous cell therapy product containing tumour-infiltrating lymphocytes poised to become the first TIL therapy approved after demonstrating excellent results at Phase 2, and Oncosex tavokinogene telsoplasmid, a DNA plasmid coding for IL-12 delivered intratumorally via electroporation in combination with Merck's Keytruda for advanced melanoma refractory to PD-1 inhibitors. Please check out the article for the other products. India's Genova Biopharmaceuticals tied up with Seattle-based HDT Bio in July 2020, soon after the latter announced in February that year that it was working on a mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. The partnership is now beginning to bear fruit with the candidate HDCO19 receiving permission for Phase 2-3 trials in India after it was found to be safe and immunogenic in a Phase 1 study. To be conducted in 400 to 500 volunteers across 10 to 15 sites, 
The phase 2 trial will involve intramuscular injections of two doses of 10 micrograms each at an interval of 28 days, an industry source tells Scripps Viva Ravi. This appears to be the first comparative trial for a COVID-19 vaccine in India, as the drug controller insisted on HDC-019 being pitted in a head-to-head comparison with AstraZeneca Serum Institute's Covishield. The Phase 3 study is proposed to be conducted in around 4,000 volunteers across 22 to 27 sites should the candidate prove superiority to Covishield, the source said. HDT Bio, a developer of immunotherapies for oncology and infectious diseases, uses a proprietary lipid inorganic nanoparticle formulation to deliver immune-stimulating RNA fragments to targeted cells via the vaccine. It's rather surprising to be asked to prove superiority rather than non-inferiority. It probably reflects the fact that India now has several approved COVID-19 vaccines and the regulator is looking for the new technology to prove its credentials, one vaccines expert said. The phase one trial was a placebo-controlled study in 120 volunteers and Genova, a subsidiary of Poon-based MCure Pharmaceuticals, now plans to use clinical trial network sites under the Department of Biotechnology and the Indian Council of Medical Research for the further trials. Finally, a growing number of companies have been publicising efforts to improve diversity in their clinical trials, highlighting moves like partnerships with community organisations and locating trial sites in areas where they are most likely to recruit racially and ethnically diverse participants. But looking at trial demographics in a particular therapeutic area highlights the scope of the problem they are trying to address, namely the historical tendency to enrol trial populations that are predominantly white and affluent, Alaric Diarmid writes. Genentech, for example, has been enlisting trial sites for its inclusive research initiative in the field of oncology. At the Atlantic's Health Equity Summit in June, Genentech Chief Diversity Officer Keita Highsmith pointed out that the lack of diversity can undercut research findings, using the example of how artificial intelligence algorithms used for drug discovery in a disease like breast cancer draw their genetic data mostly from white women. This means those data are not reflective of the general population with what remains the most common type of cancer. Looking at diversity in breast cancer clinical studies demonstrates how pervasive the issue is in clinical trials overall. To get a sense of where things stand, Scripps combed clinicaltrials.gov for breast cancer studies with commercial sponsors that began, completed and had data posted on the site between 1st January 2015 and 20th July 2021. Out of 34 Phase 1 to 3 studies, 21 included data on participants' race and ethnicity. The sample chosen is not without limitations. First and foremost, it excludes the hundreds of industry-sponsored breast cancer studies that occurred and completed during that period, but for which data were not posted. And it can't account for the possibility of errors or omissions in the data that sponsors submitted. Nevertheless, it does provide a snapshot of clinical trial diversity, or rather the lack thereof in breast cancer studies. Not surprisingly, trials were overwhelmingly white. Most of the trial populations the percentage of white participants exceeded that of the US population, while black, Latino and Native Americans were broadly underrepresented. Percentages of Asian enrollees often exceeded that of the US population. But other things stood out too. In some studies, white participants were a minority, 
Other studies lacked specific categories for Hispanic, Latino, Native American, and in some cases even Asian and black patients, but grouped significant percentages of participants into categories like other and unknown. The trials included sponsors large and small, demonstrating that trial diversity remains an industry-wide problem. But with more and more companies showing a keen and genuine interest in addressing the situation, hopefully the data will show a different picture in the years to come. That's all for this week. Thanks as always for listening. All the articles in full mentioned here are linked in the article accompanying this podcast, and do please take a free trial if you're not a current subscriber to see what you're missing. Bye for now.